We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. I teach now for over 30 years. When a class is starting, I don't know where to start because I'm always, I think everybody has has got it all. You know, I explain it all and and it's so simple, it must be clear by now, but... Whenever we start a class, then uh, in in about a few minutes, then uh, there's so much to explore and to exchange and to uh, to talk about. Just like doing an acupuncture treatment. Yeah, exactly the same. You need to be pretty empty, and you know it always feels a bit scary to to go in and to not know what uh, what you will do. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture. I'm your host, Michael Max, and today our guest is Peter Dendecker. Peter is an acupuncturist who lives in Holland, and he's also a longtime practitioner of Qigong, which is an internal Chinese art. Well, actually, Peter's going to explain it much better than I can, which is why I have him on the show. The focus of this particular show is an aspect of Qigong that involves stillness, standing still, in fact. And Peter has this marvelous book entitled The Dynamics of Standing Still that we're going to talk a bit about as we get into this. It's a lovely book. It goes into the art, the science, uh, and really the beauty of standing still. And that's what we're going to get into today. So, Peter, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, you... You do Qigong, you teach Qigong, and you practice acupuncture. How did you find your way to acupuncture, and then how did you find your way to this Qigong stuff? To start an acupuncture training was, um, uh, I would say, coincidence. I, I, when I was a boy, I read um, the, the famous book of uh, Jules Verne, The Travel Around the World in 80 Days, mm. And it has this uh, incredible, fascinating part, chapter, where he is in China, in, in Shanghai, and his, his butler is, is, is lost, and he's finding work in a Chinese circus, and so on. So I read a book when I was around 10 years old for 
few doses of time and it stayed in, my, stayed in my mind for all the years after. And then I think it was an, um, an important kind of stimulus to, to start my acupuncture training and actually end up in China for apprenticeships. Where did you study in China? I, first of all, I went to Shanghai to, uh, to an academic hospital. I stayed for a couple of months. And then um, at first time in Shanghai, I, I made contacts in Zhejiang, in, in Hangzhou. So a year after, I went to uh, Hangzhou for about half a year, and I did uh, intensive studies and apprenticeship. And that was about my, um, my learning time in China for acupuncture. Where did the Qigong come in? How did that show up in your life? When I was younger, I actually was not so much into judo or karate, but that came a bit later. When I was around 19 or 20, I came across Aikido, Japanese Aikido. Mm-hmm. Aikido, you have to be in the dojo to train it. You need partners to train it. And because I was traveling much, I was actually looking for something which I could develop myself while traveling, while not being in a dojo. So I came across uh, Tai Chi Chuan. I practiced it for a couple of years, and then it became clear that underneath this practice of Tai Chi Chuan, there was something called Qigong, not very much spread and and known. But uh, in these two uh, periods when I was in China, I, I, I could see many Chinese people practicing something which didn't look like martial art, but it was... Definitely exercise, and some did movement, some did slow movement, and some stood in postures, and it, I found it fascinating. So during that time, I came, um, I, I met people, and I met instructors and teachers who um, who showed me bits and pieces, and, and that's how it, how it started in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. In our Western world, we're usually so obsessed on movement and getting things done and doing something standing still especially as a practice or even an exercise it seems counterintuitive how is it that this standing still actually can lead to more coherent motion and how is it that it actually creates exercise in the body if you're not actually moving your body uh, that, that's, that's a question I, even after many years of practice, I, I still come across in myself, yeah? because sometimes you get demotivated or you, you need to come, you need to step into another level of practice. And this question about this, this, um, this mystery, why you should stand still because of wanting to move faster or, or, or with more force is, uh, is still in, in, um, a present question and um, it's very good to know that when you stand still with the knees slightly bended and your arms raised that is it's not the case that you do not do anything it's many muscles and maybe you can say it's all muscles in the body who work together we need to unify into um, we need to come together in a unified activity to hold um, to hold the stillness yeah? so when I'm on the bike there's also many muscles moving, but um, they're more or less separate from each other in their function. But in standing still or in sitting still postures, you um, you will find out that uh, it's actually pretty hard that you start to get warm and you start to sweat. So it's um, it clarifies that uh, you're not doing nothing. Eh? It's, it's just like Lao Tzu wrote in the Tao Te Ching. 
that um, by following the Tao, every day you do less. By following normal studies, you do you you gain more and more. But by following the Tao, every day is less, every day less. Still, no action is achieved. But then the key th- sentence is, when nothing is done, nothing is left undone. Yeah? So you don't do anything, but at the same time, everything, every muscle, every every tissue in your body is is helping, is assisting to um, to keep the posture and to um, and to uh, perpetuate uh, non-moving, non-movement. This is a this is an interesting idea, perpetuating non-movement, and that in the process of perpetuating non-movement, holding a stance, holding a posture that you're actually using all kinds of muscles and tissues, but in a more internal way. If there's a frozen panic, if you experience a spasm in your, in your, in your shoulders or in your arms, then there's also not moving, not mo- non-movement to be seen. But because the agonist and the antagonist, they work against each other on a 100% level. And uh, in a coma or in a lethargic uh, phase, there's um, zero activity in the agonist and also zero, zero activity in the antagonist. Mm-hmm. But that's not what, what, we, what we try to achieve. We want to let the muscle work at a minimum of effort and let this antagonist, the muscle which is controlling the first muscle, work at, uh, at an equal um, um, amount of effort. Yeah? So maybe only five percent. Just just like you start your car and the start and the, the motor of your car is uh, is running stationary, but you still not do anything with. But still the motor is getting warm. Still all the motor parts they're working together to make m- movement possible. Right. So there's this sort of dynamic neutral that gets cultivated. Just just like in the athletic track, when it's. Um, on your places, uh, ready, and then um, on your places brings you more to the earth, lets you sink, lets mm. you make feel more ground under your feet, and ready is uh, activating your whole nerve system and activating all your um, sensory organs. And at the moment, uh, the go is uh, is um, is there, then you can spur it away, you can explode. And so what we do in a standing chikung or in a sitting chikung, we try to recreate that very moment when the, the resources are at their peak, without that you spend them. So it's still on your places, you need to fully relax, you need to ground yourself. At the same time, you're ready, so your nervous system, your sense organs, they're ultimate sharp. And that coming together of what they say in China, yin and yang, uh, the mm-hmm. earth forces and the heavenly forces, they create more energy. Uh, and it's not a, uh, not a magical thing, but it's, it's palpable. Uh, you feel it in the body. You feel more warm. You feel more circulation going on. The heartbeat is also fastening. But you don't spend it. That's the, that's the point. You don't spend it in, in jumping or shouting or... So it's it's a it's a process of consolidating and cultivating until the moment that you want to release it. Consolidating in a sense that you you're not holding it because holding life, holding chi is not possible because that's a streaming thing in itself. But you like to perpetuate it, like just like a river keeps on streaming. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 
your book is gorgeous. And I just I want to suggest to the listeners that if they if they have any sort of interest in uh, this topic that we're talking about to uh, do check out the book, I'll have uh, a link to it on the show notes page. First of all, it's beautiful in its uh, use of color and image, and uh, and the words are exceptional as well. It's kind of a, in my experience, it's sort of a do-it-yourself manual. And, and I'll, we'll get more into that in a little bit about how to best use the book. The thing that, that I wanted to ask you about right now is in many of the sections, there's not only a posture and a suggestion of how to either move or, or how to uh, engender the stillness, but there's also these lovely pictures of what's going on inside of the body. So that standing may not just be standing, but it's engaging maybe the diaphragm or it's engaging the psoas muscle or all kinds of different bodily systems. Often here in the West, we think, oh, I have to work very hard to exercise certain parts of my body. But in looking through your book, it appears that it's possible with a little bit of awareness and just small movements you can exercise the entire body with this really quiet method. I'm wondering if you teach this to your to your patients, to people that are that are looking for help with acupuncture and that sort of thing. Do you often use some of the postures or movements from the qigong? Yes, I do. It's um, it was a process of of quite a few years that I in in clinic I was using for exercises which I could teach to, uh, to patients, which were effective for their state of health. But many effective exercises, they seem to be very difficult to explain and maybe even difficult to perform. So then you are looking for easy exercises, exercises were easy to, uh, to transmit to somebody and who are easy to, uh, to, to perform yourself at home. And that, those two things were not matching. So I was, especially in the, in the two periods I was in China in the past, I was looking for exercises which were highly effective and also who could be used for a wide range of conditions. And at the same time, they, they, they needed to be easy. And um, yeah, the standing still or the sitting still exercises, they fit in that picture very much. Yeah, there's some lovely, well, there's the section that I'm reading at this point. I thought I would read directly through your book, but I find that I read a couple of pages and then I have to spend a little time exploring it, seeing how it feels in my body. And so it's taking me a lot longer to get through your book than I originally thought. I'm at this section now, uh, working with the arms and the shoulders. And the exercise is basically carrying shopping bags. I was quite struck at how there are things ostensibly that could be used as an exercise that really it's just our everyday motion and activities. I'm, I'm wondering for the benefit of our listeners, other than carrying grocery bags, are there some other everyday sorts of movements that we all make that with, with a bit of mindfulness and with a bit of understanding, we could take those everyday movements and turn them into something that benefits us even more. There's about um, there's quite a few postures you could um, you could practice. 
some are related to to monastic uh, uh, they have a monastic past a monastic origin and many they have a martial origins but if you analyze uh, the multitude of them you end up with about six or seven or eight postures which are essential and these essential postures they reflect daily life um, activities like uh, carrying shopping bags or holding some some something you want to carry before your belly and a posture where you um, which you use in general for uh, keeping balance so these uh, these so-called uh, qigong training postures are not uh, abstract in the sense that they're beside daily life in fact they reflect uh, the most common daily life postures of course uh, the embracing posture you, you can use for um, for riding a car or riding a bike but also for holding a violin or embracing a friend or of course, you need to alter them slightly, yeah, but uh, but uh, the core image is uh, is what we use as a training posture. Mm-hmm. Do you work with athletes or musicians or people that that work with, let's say, high performance of some sort, in helping them with their body dynamics and postures and movement? Yeah, over the past years, there's a large number of people busy in a in the creative environment like dancers musicians uh, actors as well and also on a regular basis i see in the, in, the, in the weekly classes people who are um, involved in sport and sometimes top sport and what sorts of benefits or changes do you see happening in the people that use this dynamic this dynamic stillness so to speak how does it change what they do yeah, in various ways. But for example, a very common thing in for musicians is that they um, that they uh, suffer stress, and, they, and at the moment they have to perform, then a lot of things are happening which they cannot control easy. And within the motion, within the motion of playing, within the uh, the full activity, it's it's pretty hard and maybe even impossible to to alter your common patterns. So what we use uh, the reason we use the still postures is it, things are not moving, and you become, may you might become more aware about the placement of your feet or the placement of your knees and uh, the way you hold your pelvis and what you do with your uh, breathing. And within stillness, a, a, an old pattern, a common pattern, is easy is uh, easier shows itself, and it's also easier to. Um, uh, to give, an, to give an, a, a different direction, uh, to change it. So in the case of many musicians and, and uh, dancers and actors, uh, they reported that they understand better how, they, how to handle their breathing and how to handle their posture at the moment they have to perform. Do I explain right? Or? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm sitting here and kind of drinking it in, so to speak. I... About seven months ago, I started taking guitar lessons for like the first time in 40-some-odd years. As a kid, I took guitar lessons. I The problem back then is I wanted to know how to play guitar. I wasn't so interested in learning. And, uh, and now I'm interested in learning. I have no idea if I'll ever be able to play. And one of the things that I've noticed is the way that I sit has a whole lot to do with the way the guitar sounds because if I'm just kind of leaning back and my posture is not really good and, and my rib cage is, you know, a little cramped, 
I'm slouching. In some ways, it's comfortable, but it doesn't make for good guitar playing. And if I'm sitting up more upright, it sounds different. And so as I'm listening to you talk about how these professionals, these performers, are getting in touch with their posture, their breath, uh, the very getting in touch with their quietness, basically, that it, it informs their movement in a much deeper way. So I think it's just a long, long about way of saying I'm listening to what you're talking about. And it raises questions in my mind for how I can approach the practice that I have with music and how that might show up. Yeah, it's quite possible to have an awful posture and still be a great musician. And there's many examples of that. But for educational reasons, for um, uh, increasing the, your your the possibilities to uh, you know to develop your skills, uh, posture is a very important thing. Very important thing. In the past, I, I I could view posture and breathing as two different subjects. But over the years, I came to understand that. Um, Posture is breathing, and breathing is posture. They're so much interlinked that you actually cannot separate them se- separate them from each other. And when you talk about posture, you talk about mindset, about about uh, how resilient you you are uh, in the face of uh, of the different stresses. So this is maybe one of the reasons why we so often hear: if you're angry, take a few deep breaths before you say anything. Uh, yeah, it's also more difficult to become angry if you're straight, yeah? not overly straight, not exaggerated, but natural straight. Straightness is uh, if it's it's much just more difficult to um, to being um, I call it led away by your own emotions. Mm-hmm. So, is what you're saying then, if the posture and the breath are are straighter and aligned with each other? the emotions run smoother or the emotions run differently? It's still hard to say for me. There's a, there's a very thin line between meditation and, and these Qigong practices. Mm. And um, they have a, a certain amount in common. But, um, you know, in most med- in the meditation practices I, I know of, I, I practice myself, the main goal is not to uh, improve life situation but to accept life as it is. And in Qigong practices, actually, you hope for improvement. You hope to make life more agreeable with less stresses and less, hopefully, also less physical complaints. So that's a major uh, difference between meditation and Qigong practices. Yeah, it's a really, it was, this was one of my questions actually about because seated meditation and mindfulness is increasingly popular. I mean, it's at least here in the States, and I suspect over there too, it's, it's all over the place now. It's not considered some fringe, strange thing anymore. Lots of people practice meditation. And, and I have a meditative practice as well. I find it really interesting. It's, it, it's the one time in the day where I actually am not asking life to give me or do anything. It's the one time in the day where I, I just let it be as it is and don't ask it for anything, which is kind of a strange thing to do, especially for us Westerners, I think, to actually take some time out of the day and not ask for life to be any different and not ask for the practice that we're doing to give us anything. 
it's oddly helpful. And, and, I, and don't ask me to explain how it's helpful because I can't explain why it's helpful. It's just somehow helpful. My wife says I'm, I'm much more even-tempered, so maybe there's that. What I just heard you suggest, though, is that with this Qigong practice, there's, there's something to get, and yet this sounds so much like an aspect of meditation, I'm curious to know more about what people can expect to get and and how the mindset of doing qigong is different than the mindset of just stillness meditation because it seems like there's a lot of stillness going on in this uh in this standing practice. Usually you sit still for meditation in an in a very quiet environment. Nobody is talking and there's no music, there's no so you need to withdraw from daily life. But the standing qigong actually can be performed in an um, in a rumorous environment. Maybe not all the time. It's also good to to train outdoors in the early morning in a park or out in nature. But um, you can very well practice it in the midst of city life and in the midst of a busy family life. It's not necessary to switch off all the sound and 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 uh, ask uh, the people you live with to uh, to not speak and to not walk around. So you can find you can find stillness within a moving environment. That's also one of the differences between standing qigong and uh, meditation. you've enjoyed the first half of the show now it's time for a word from our sponsor that would be you actually you could indeed sponsor a show here for a nominal fee and have your billboard on the internet sandwiched into the show send along an email for details on that or you could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. Stillness in an active environment. That sounds absolutely inviting. That sounds like the cure to a bunch of ills. You know, in, in many classics in, in Chinese medicine and Chinese martial arts, they say, they quote, you need to have a structure, you need to have a yin, which is carrying the yang, which uh, represents the, the functional part of our being. And, so if you want to speak, if you want to move, if you want to communicate, you need to have a stable basis. Just like a car, the car can run, the car can move, you can, can, you can travel with the car. But uh, the structure of the car needs to be uh, as such that it goes a long way, that doesn't fall apart as soon as you start a motor. So it's said at the end, the structural part of the being is carrying the young. So standing Qigong is very much emphasizing the the yin, the, which for many is invisible, but uh, you know, the structure of your house is very different as the wallpaper and how doors and windows move. Of course, they're related, but uh, 
to see the structure of your house, you need to look also into the foundation, which is hidden, into the beams uh, holding the roof up. So the invisible structure is uh, the support, uh, is the mother, is the is the foundation for everything which is functioning and movable. So in, in, in many sports, you learn to move shoulders and knees and, 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 and spine and so forth. But what we do in standing shikung is we, um, we stand in stillness, which is not stillness in the sense that you don't do anything. Yeah? Because um, we can say that uh, all body parts and all muscles are working together to keep the stillness in order to uh, to strengthen our our core to strengthen our um, our structure our inner structure physically and mentally how long do you recommend people practice for if they want to take up this practice what what would you recommend in terms of getting started in terms of time spent every day doing this and i suspect doing it every day is is probably a key thing yeah, the, reg- the regularity is more important, especially at the first phases of, uh, of practice. The regularity is more important as the, uh, as the quantity, as, as how long time you stand within one session. So for beginners, I, I usually um, advise to, to practice every day. But that also could mean that you only stand for one minute. For example, you, uh, you fill the tea kettle with uh, water and you... You uh, put it on the stove, and for the time that it comes to a boil, you just stand there. Yeah? And you can use a posture with your palms downward to warm your hands above the kettle. Or you, uh, you use the time you have to wait in the, in the queue before, before you uh, have to pay your, your shopping in the supermarket. It might take uh, a minute or two minutes, and that time you also can use to practice your standing posture. I mean, not in a standing posture with your arms raised because everybody will look at you and, they, and uh, you, you, you won't feel very comfortable, people staring at you, but you, can, you can still can stand for the time being. Yes, I, uh, I was actually giving a talk at a school here the other day, and in the time that I was being introduced... It's, you know, it's nerve wracking going and speaking to a group that you've never met and, you know, there's all these strangers. And, and I found that as I was being introduced and that I was, as I was getting more and more anxious about doing this lecture, because I've been practicing some of these postures, I found myself moving my weight back a little bit toward my heels, bending my knees a bit, sort of sitting on this big balloony ball that you talk about. And it changed my breath. It just gave me something to do. I was doing it to, well, not to distract, maybe to distract myself, but it actually helped to, to bring me into the moment so that I could do the lecture. Mm. It, it was only for a minute. That was a long minute. Yeah, where are some other places in life that people can use this posture, these postures and these processes besides standing in line and boiling our water? Where else... Do you notice, especially in, in work with your patients, where do they end up using this and finding it to be of value? I still teach at various acupuncture academies, and um, the Qigong I teach there is entirely based on how you sit or how you sit taking the pulse of your patient or you stand uh, working with needles. 
So I don't teach them uh, the technique of, of, of needling, but I show them how to master their posture, uh, to be in touch with their feet and their legs and their spine in order to have an optimal foundation for the therapeutic activity which following later. Mm. And a massage therapist, they found it very useful. But uh, in uh, in the classes I teach in Amsterdam, I have people from many different, uh, I see many people from many different directions, many different ages, many different um, uh, professions, professional backgrounds. Uh, I often compare the standing chikung with... Um, white rice or potatoes or brown rice, I mean, the staple food of your, which is on your plate. So there's side dishes around it, but uh, either bread, rice or potatoes are forming the, uh, the greatest quantity of what you eat. I don't know how about in America, but um, in Europe we have a great uh, culture in bread, which was uh, more or less lost and now more and more revived. And uh, it's an it's an art to bake a good bread. It's an it's an art in Orient. It's an art to to cook um, tasty and good rice. And, and a sushi cook spend most of the time uh, learning how to cook uh, the sushi rice. Yeah. And my father often said, if you want to, um, if you're judging an Oriental restaurant, then just order rice or see how they cook the rice. If you can do that well, then the rest will follow. You can be. Um, at ease with uh, with the side dishes, so the the standing posture. So the the, the very much based on the structure of life, the structure of your physics, and the structure of your mind is uh, very much comparable with good rice or good bread. In that sense, not spectacular. Uh, so I will tell my I'm telling my students all the time that uh, if they are expecting uh, something spectacular, then uh, there will be. Um, no, they won't find it. But they might find out something about simple everyday life. Simplicity, yes. Yeah, it's very simple. Mm. I like that word simple. It's it's one that runs through my mind on a regular basis these days, mostly because my life is fairly complex and seems to be getting increasingly so. And so I'm constantly looking at, well, what can I simplify? What I, I don't want to do more with more. I actually want to do more with less, or maybe even do less with less. Hadn't thought about that. That might be worth exploring. Your book is, I think I mentioned it, it's a delight to look at visually, for one. And a person could just look at the book and, and get all kinds of inspiration from it. You have fabulous directions for how to do some of these postures. If our listeners wanted to, well, certainly if they wanted to travel to Europe to work with you, they could do that. But if they would like to learn something about the postures and bringing some of these simple movements into their life, how could they best approach and use the book? Have you got any suggestions on, if you're not there to teach them in person, how the book could become their teacher? In the period uh, of writing the book, I was well aware that um, if you if you write a book, you don't know who's buying it, you don't know who's reading it. So, with that in mind, I selected uh, around three or four postures and a few introductory moving exercises. 
So the, the, the quantity of exercises described in the book is, is very small, very, very small. And um, uh, there's many other books on, on Qigong. They describe more the, um, the, the wider view in, in, in that sense that they present maybe a 20 postures. But I uh, deliberately ch- choose for only a few and, and make many bridges into biology and anatomy and music and, and um, into daily life. And because I thought there's already so many books written about um, Chinese Qigong. Uh, Qigong, of course, is coming from China and that cultural background should be uh, always uh, taken in consideration. But um, if we practice Qigong here in Europe, or if you practice uh, uh, in America, it should become American, it should become European, because it's our body, it's our daily life. I believe that the exercises I described in the book are of such a simplicity that it's very difficult to go wrong with them. Of course, it's always better to, to, to work with an instructor, but uh, I know that many people live more isolated and there's no instructor available. So, um, uh, the book is out now for around five years and we get a lot of responses from people buying, having bought a book and, and, uh, reporting that they can use it practically and they don't, uh, they don't experience any, uh, side effects or difficulties. I think it's an incredibly practical book. In fact, I've got, um, I've got a question from doing some of this practice myself. Could I could I run this by you? Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. sure okay, yeah. great. So I've noticed that in practicing some of these exercises, that as I settle, and, and you mentioned this, that the breath and the, and the posture are intimately connected, but as, as I settle, my breath changes. It goes from like being in my lungs into this, like it deepens into this full body breathing. And then there's this, I often get a tingling in my hands and then I'll notice that the bones in my feet start to creak and crack and they naturally will readjust themselves as the balance shifts. It's almost like standing in a, in a warm pool of water. And then there's this sense that, that as I get stiller, the motion in the world around me becomes, in some ways it becomes more apparent. The quieter I get, the more I notice the motion going on around me. And at a certain point, this full body breathing shifts and it actually feels like my breath is coming not from inside of me, but from outside of me. What's going on here? Uh, Somewhere in the book, I um, I took the image of an iceberg. The uh, apparent part of the iceberg above the surface of the water is... um, is uh, representing the the conscious part of our breathing, but the bigger part of the breathing is like the uh, the part of the iceberg be- iceberg beneath the water surface. So instead, that uh, the qigong or this type of qigong is an, a breathing exercise. You use the body, you use the postures to guide the breathing, and um, a posture we usually start with called wuji posture is a very much uh, posture leading the without that you make any mental effort um, for that purpose but it just by the physical posture by the nature of the posture it leads to breathing down into the pelvic floor into the lower belly and the lower back and then the postures which are following they are 
slightly different in nature. They lead the breathing to the flanks and to the shoulder blades and to the chest. But without that, it's uh, it's it's never a breathing exercise. It's never never you use the willpower. You never you use an, um, uh, your uh, your guiding mind to lead the breathing. Uh, you remember? Uh, I mean, you went to that uh, chapter where I used the um, the images of the uh, the ox, uh, the taming of the ox, a, a traditional pictorial story. I did not get to that one. No, not yet. It's, it's in the same chapter of the iceberg. Eh? So a little boy is uh, he has lost the, the ox. He needs to he's paid for caring for the ox, but he lost the ox. And then in the next picture, he is uh, looking for the ox and actually seeing a glimpse of the ox. Yeah, but the little boy is the conscious mind, and the uh, ox is the unconscious mind. Eh? The little boy that's us and the the breathing that's the and the and the ox represent the breathing itself and the power of 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 life itself so in the course of this ten picture story then um, the little boy comes to know how to tame the ox and uh, first of all he does it with a whip and a rope and with his muscle power but of course uh, the ox is so much stronger and so much more um, so much more powerful as a little boy that the that the boy finds a way ultimately finds the way how to unify himself with the ox. And then without any effort, the ox follows him and he follows the ox. So that's the moment that that your conscious mind and the breathing, uh, the subconscious mind, are not experienced anymore as two different things, but they merge how it was all the time before. And then um, you stand in a posture, an original, authentic posture, and a simple posture, and then it feels like you don't do anything, but uh, you come to a stillness. But just like Lao Tse wrote, he said, uh, you, don't do, you don't do anything, but yet everything is done. So the breathing is all over. It's in the pelvic floor, it's in the lower belly, it's in the lower back, it's in the middle back and upper back, it's in the shoulders, just like the breathing of a little child. And when a child is sleeping, there's no conscious effort to guide the breathing, but still the breathing can be felt everywhere, even in arms and legs and head. So that's called authentic breathing, childish breathing or fetal breathing. And by means of posture, we try to step by step come back to that kind of state in the midst of life, while we're driving car or while we're talking to somebody or while we're performing our job. But the conscious mind is not suitable to, to do that job because your conscious mind is necessary to talk or to perform, to write or to, uh, to, do, your, to do your thing. So we do it by means of body. We do it by means of the soma. I'm thinking here of how as we grow in age and have experience in life, there are so many experiences, often things that frighten us or things that have caused injury. All these ways that we go from this little child that actually can breathe into every aspect of its being and body to these people that have shoulder pain and back pain and digestive issues or, you know, whatever. Because in some ways, we're no longer inhabiting. Our breath can no longer get into some of these places in our physiology 
due to injury, due to fears, due to something that's closed it off. So it sounds like this practice of, of standing stillness and allowing the breath to come more into these places where maybe it hasn't, it hasn't been for a long time. Is this true? Is this what happens as people practice more and more? Yeah, I see people who practice just a little over a short period of time, and they tell me that they benefit. But I also see people who, who keep on coming for classes over longer periods of time, even 10 or 15 or 20, even 20 years. And um, I make the comparison with the baking bread. I mean, you can learn to bake a bread in a, in a day, yeah? but still you can use a lifetime or, or anyway many years to uh, to enhance your skills. That's that's not your question. What was your question again? The the question. Well, first of all, that I mean that makes sense. What you just said makes sense. Uh, there are some things. Uh, well, seated breath meditation, for example, very simple, but not easy. My question in this case was, as people do this practice and as their breath begins to reinvigorate parts of their physiology where it just it hadn't been for a long time maybe maybe they had a scare as a young child and so there's just a way that their chest doesn't move but in doing this work as the breath begins to reinvigorate these places i'm wondering if people experience things like maybe asthma going away or you know chronic coughs changing or digestion changing in some way because now the body is freer to move in the way that's more natural and authentic Mm, yeah, that's happening. That's mm-hmm. happening. But I, I never promote um, the qigong as a as a medical um, as a medical means as a medical um, intervention. Can I say it like that? Can yes. I name yes. It like yes. That? Absolutely. But um, yeah, because things fall in place. And the breathing with the mind, and the mind to the body, and the mind to the breathing. They all these three factors. They they were scattered. They were. They're not being together, and then step by step they come closer and they fuse again. Then, yeah, things happen that that, that uh, allergies or discomforts and sometimes illnesses they uh, they decrease in severity. And um, sometimes uh, students or practitioners they ask, is there a special exercise for the knees or for the liver or for the spine? And of course there are, there's many Qigong styles which promote uh, knee exercises or special techniques for the spine and so on. But in a standard Qigong, I believe we work on the fertility of the land itself and not on that on one square meter, but, but you take the whole garden, the whole field, uh, which you want to, which are, you're gardening, and over the years, you uh, you try to uh, increase the fertility of it, and that work is um, in principle for the long term. So sometimes I see a student or a practitioner who is um, expecting miracles in the short term, and then I have to tell them that uh, this is actually not uh, to be expected, and that they should have much more patience to this will show show result, but uh, it needs regularity and it needs a longer period, months and maybe years. I worked uh, already 
long ago with the HIV Association in Amsterdam for um, seven, eight years. And that was a group of which was visited by exclusively uh, people who are, uh, who are HIV positive, who are develop AIDS. And we never promoted this as being medical. Uh, it, I believe it supported many of them because they found back that, that unity of breathing, mind and, and body. And uh, some stayed for just a, for a couple of classes, but many stayed for many years. And they reported that they, that it was very, very helpful for them to uh, to practice the Qigong on a regular basis. You know, this this makes me think of something we talk about in Chinese medicine, an aspect of our being called the Zheng Qi, right? The upright Qi, the the part that's true and authentic. These practices sound like they they cultivate that. They cultivate that part of us. You know, even when we're sick, it's the part of us that actually never gets sick. It's the part of us that always has some sort of connection to life. In fact, this is called... I, I don't have the book in front of me. I should. What's the name of this in Chinese again? It, the word Zheng is in it, isn't it? The, the Tun Chi, yeah, the, yeah. the upright Chi, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Peter, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners here as we get ready to wind this down? Uh, about this interview, I thought it was, um, uh, I did my best in a, in, a, in a language which I don't speak every day. But um, yeah, it makes me aware that there's a lot to, to say about it. The practice itself is basically simple, but it invites for uh, for a much deeper investigation over the years. And um yeah, I inspired myself, <laughs> inspired myself to uh, to to come back to it uh, again. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time.